the Pedal Steel Podcast. Welcome to episode 11 of the Pedal Steel Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Dast. And this episode, we are featuring an interview with pedal steel player and multi-instrumentalist, John Grayboff. Let's get right to it. Behind the Bar. All right, we are here with John Grayboff, probably best known for his work with Ryan Adams and the Cardinals. He's also played, uh, recorded, and or toured with uh, people like Willie Nelson, Nora Jones, David Byrne, Carrie Underwood, Noel Gallagher, Harper Simon, Phil Lesh, M. Ward, and others. Uh, and we're absolutely pleased to have him on the podcast. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Happy Halloween as we record this. It's October 31st. Uh, yes, yes, it is indeed. And uh, good night to stay in. Yeah. Well, I, I would assume you're in full costume. I know I am. but. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I got my, my usual house costume. Right. <laughs> I don't usually share that information with people, but as long as you brought it up, okay. but I won't go into details. Okay, good, good, good. Well, okay, so I just want to start by saying, you know, um, I know that you are actually recovering from wrist surgery, uh, so I wanted to ask you how that's going. Uh, slow, really, really slow. Um, yeah, I, got, I had a, kind of a freaky accident where I literally got kind of catapulted off of a back of a golf cart at the top of a little hill and kind of went flying through the air about five or six feet off the ground and came down onto concrete. Mm. And my wrist ended up looking like the letter Z lying on its side. Oh, my God. Like, physically, you could just see the, the break? Yeah, it was the, pretty gruesome. The damage? Oh, yeah. I mean, it literally, it was, it was like the shape of the letter Z lying on its side. I mean, it looked really gnarly. I had it, you know, this happened up in Rochester, New York, and they set it up there and put a cast on it. And by the time I got back to the city the next day and went to the NYU orthopedic uh, surgery division, everything they had done in Rochester had gone gone completely undone. And they said, hey, the the only way to have this done and put together right is to have surgery. And they put a metal plate in there with some screws and holds everything together. Mm. And you should have, you know, you should recover completely from it. But uh, in, uh, it's actually 12 weeks already, and um, really just being able to make a fist. Yeah. Is, it, is that your right hand or your left? My left hand. So uh, I, had a, a, I had a little stab at trying to play gu- the guitar a little while ago, just very gently, but apparently I over-exercised even gently, and oh, my fingers swelled up, and I couldn't bend them. I mean, it, got, it was a real mess. But I think I'm back, uh, back on the mend, and... Going to try start playing again pretty soon, um, but it's a long road back. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess especially with the, I mean, either hand would would be bad news, but um, you know, for playing guitar, the left hand is obviously very essential. For playing steel, you can kind of get away with a little bit of. I mean, I, I've seen um, a few posts from people on the steel guitar forum who have issues with their wrist or hand on the left hand. Um, and they have, you know, either fabricated or adapted bars that have like some sort of ring system or something that basically holds the bar for you, kind of in a way. So you could still do a little. Yeah, I, you know, the, interestingly enough, I haven't really even tried playing the steel lately because I was under strict orders not to pick up anything over five pounds for a long time. Yeah. And just just setting it up and pulling it out of the case would have exceeded that 
right that weight limit that weight limit so i've just decided you know i'm just going to be chill about it and not not run the risk of you know further damage so but i think i'm at the point now where i can give it a shot it's just been uh, a little a little busy the last couple the last week or so so i haven't really done it yet but i'm trying to think about it this week yeah trying to get back on this back in the saddle excellent that's awesome well i know that it kind of cut that tour short for you which is kind of a a bummer. That was you were out with uh, Cindy Lauper, and I think you guys were supporting Rod Stewart. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was a, that was a fun tour. We had I had done about a year and a half with Cindy because she had done a country record and uh, with Dan Dugmore playing on it. Oh, cool. And they needed, needed a steel player, so that's where I came in. And interestingly, as the tour, uh, as the year and a half went on, we started doing fewer and fewer songs from her country record and started doing more and more back catalog stuff. But I'd sort of adapted, I was playing regular guitar in a couple of tunes, but I sort of adapted the pedal steel to actually make a positive impact yeah. as a different voice in the back catalog stuff, and it kind of worked pretty good. So even though we were kind of got to the point where we weren't doing very many tunes from the country record, I was still playing steel on, oh, 80% of the tunes we were doing in the course of a night. That's cool. Are there um, any recordings of any of that stuff available anywhere? It'll all be on, you know, as as everything is these days. Everything's online somewhere. Yeah, you know, everybody's everybody's standing out there with their cell phones recording something, and it all is inevitably gets on YouTube. Yeah, but for, you know, for then, better or for worse, then you just have to watch some horrible. It's just like the worst quality video, and well, every once in a while you luck out. You know, yeah, and somebody was actually recording it somewhat decently, but well, I got to um. To see you with Cindy Lauper, uh, and when I say see, I put that in in air quotes because I actually couldn't get close enough to the, to the stage. This was at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, uh, 2016, last year. Oh yeah, that was a that was a fun show. That stage was just mobbed. I couldn't. I mean, I during that set, I couldn't. You know, it was just jam packed. People were like, you know, packed in like sardines to the point where my friend. I was trying to meet my friend, and she's like, "I'm having a like an anxiety attack. I have to get out of here." You know, so I got to hear you play Steel with Cindy, but I did not get to, I couldn't actually see you or the band or anybody because we were just too far away. But, That's uh, a shame, but yeah, yeah, that was a really fun show. And I thought, uh, uh, you know, just, you know, obviously Cindy Lauper hardly strictly is, a, is an interesting um, billing. Yeah. And I think everybody was sort of wondering how, how it would be received. But yeah, you're right. It was, it was just a real mob scene and everybody seemed to really dig it. And you know, one thing you can say about Cindy is she's a great performer. Yeah, and she never, she never, she never just throws. You know, she never just phones it in. You know, and and uh, and I, you know, I think uh, you know, as I said, everybody was wondering how well, how well, how it was going to go over. And as soon as you know, from the first tune, it seemed like oh, everything's going to be great, and it was. It was a really fun, uh, you know, fun gig. That's awesome. I, I wanted to ask you about a few of the other people um, on you know the list here of people you've worked with. Obviously, Ryan Adams is is a big one, and that's I think mm-hmm. most people probably know you as oh the guy who plays with Ryan Adams and the Cardinals. Um, but a couple of people on your list, I was really interested to see that I did not realize you had uh, done any work with. One was Noel Gallagher from Oasis. Well, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Uh, the Cardinals did a tour opening for Oasis few years back and after the very first gig well you know the funny thing about that gig was that everybody everybody in in oasis was was would was be standing in the wings watching our set 
which I we, did, we found kind of interesting. And and I realized after a while that you know their set was so heavily choreographed with with a, a visual show and lighting and all that kind of stuff that they pretty much had to do their show pretty much in that order the same way every night. And of course, in Ryan, in Ryan world, you never play the same song the same way twice. And I think they were sort of intrigued by that. Yeah. And in that in that band, if we played the first two songs on the set list in order, that was actually kind of unusual. <laughs> you know, we'd, we'd have a set list, and you know, interestingly enough, more more often than not, I could tell what song Ryan was going to play by the kind of the stance he took. After a while, you got to, you, after a while, you got to, you kind of you kind of got to notice the the physicality that he would employ on any given song. So we got to, you know, that whole band was, was such, such a well-lubricated machine that we just got to the point where we could sort of follow him anywhere at the drop of, on, at the drop of a hat. And uh, so they'd be watching our show every night. And after the very first gig, I was talking to Gem, the other guitar player in Oasis. And he goes, hey, you know, I was standing over there at the monitor desk with Noel watching you guys. And I said, yeah, I saw you over there. And he goes... And Noel gives me the elbow and says, next time I need a pedal steel player, I'm going to call that guy. <laughs> nice. And I thought, well, that, that's, that's awesome. That's pretty cool. And I think it was three years later, I was in, in the studio recording, a, working on a record with Shooter Jennings. And we were right between takes, and I see my, my phone light up. And, of course, you know, we were working, so I didn't pick it up. And hours, hours later, I picked. I said, "Oh, somebody tried to call me. I wonder who that was." And I, I pick up my phone, and it's it's a it's a UK number, and I listen to the message, and it's Noel leaving a message on my machine saying, "Hey, I'm making a record in LA. I want to know if you can play on a tune of mine." And I immediately called him back. For some reason, I had it in my mind that he was in LA, but then as soon as I left the message, I realized, oh, he's he said he's going to be in LA, and he's probably in England, and I just called him at 5.30 in the morning, and I probably freaked him out thinking that somebody died or something like that. So I immediately sent him an email saying, man, I'm really sorry that I called you in the middle of the night, lost track of the time, blah, blah, blah. And he got back and said, oh, no worries. I'm going to be in L.A. on such and such, you know, between such and such a date, and I'd love to have you come out and play on a tune that I have that I think you'd fit in on. And I said, great. So they flew me out to L.A. to play on one song. Wow. And it was on his first solo album, the High Flying Birds. It was a song called If I Had a Gun. And it was a completely delightful experience and I uh, was d- delighted to, to be able to do it. It was great. It was very flattering. That's awesome. I mean, he, he, Noel is, and I guess all of Oasis, they are kind of famous for their big personalities. Did you find that to be true in the studio when you were working with him or is it just more of a... No, Noel is very, when, when he's not on stage, he's a very quiet guy. That's kind of the impression I got, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's very soft-spoken, and he's very kind of, you know, kind of, he has an intensity about him, but it's not a physical intensity, you know. He's, you, can, you know, you can tell he's got a lot going on upstairs. Yeah. And, uh, but he's very quiet, and, you know, he just said, well, here's, here's how the song goes, and just, you know, we're just, we're just going to just run a whole bunch of takes and just do whatever you want. Nice. So, was that one you were doing uh, just as an overdub or playing with? Yeah, no, the, it was it was an overdub situation. He had, he had recorded. I mean, geez, I can't even remember how many tracks they told me were on this particular song, but there were a ton of them. There was a lot going on, and uh, so, you know, I said, "I'm just going to, you know, whatever you do is going to kind of kind of come kind of come in and out. It's just going to be some little things. So, kind of play play the song down a bunch of times and 
you know, give me a bunch of different ideas and, and we'll see what we got, you know, we'll see what we get later on. And that's pretty much what he did, you know, and just, uh, and he really kind of never gave me any sort of direction or anything. He just said, just, you know, just do stuff. Yeah. I find sometimes that can be, uh, freeing and other times I'm like, give me something, you know, give me some kind of, well, you know, here's the, here's what I have found in over and over and over again. And I think a lot of people will tell you the same thing. If you're presented with a really good song, you have more ideas than you can, you can use. Yeah. If you're presented with a real crappy song, you can't think of one thing to play. I think <laughs> if it's a very repetitive chord progression, I feel like I just start going through those, the stock stuff after a while when I'm like, but if the song has a lot of cool, interesting chord changes, there, it's like, like you almost say, it's almost endless ideas because there's just so much it's juicy stuff to dig into. Yeah, I mean, more more often than not, for, for me, if something has a really, really engaging melody, it really inspires counter melodies and, and things like that. And, and almost, almost as if you're orchestrating, uh, orchestrating something as opposed to playing like, just like a lead line or whatever. It's like, uh, you know, you end up, I end up more often than not thinking of melodic lines that, you know, somehow relate to the thing, but are almost a standalone piece. And when I, when I, when I hit on one of those things, and I think it, you know, and it, and it feels successful, it's really rather gratifying. Because you just, you just don't feel like you're playing along, you're actually contributing to the composition at that point. And that's a, that's a nice, nice place to be if you can pull it off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another one of these uh, people I wanted to ask you about was Harper Simon, um, who... He had this one album. So Harper Simon is Paul Simon's son. Yeah, I've known Harper since I've known Harper since he was like 19 years old, and I kind of enter his orbit periodically. Oh yeah, with year with with years in between. It's funny. It's a funny thing. I really love Harper. He's a really sweet guy and really talented, but he's always doing you know a bunch of different things and always going all over the place. And so I find myself entering his orbit on a semi-circular level. Um, so did, uh, were you doing recording work with him or playing live shows? Yeah, no, I never... I ne- no, as a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever recorded with Harper. Um, you know, I actually tell you the truth, I think I started playing with him before I even started playing Steel. And it goes back that far. And then, you know, when he did that record um, in Nashville, using Charlie McCoy as the uh, MD and Lloyd Green on Steel and... and uh, Gene Crisman on drums and all these, you know, A-team guys. You know, he came out with a record and asked me, you know, to, to, to do some touring with him behind that record. I love that record. I do, too. I mean, I really, I really like that record a lot. I think a lot of the songs are really great. And as I said, I'm, you know, he's a really talented guy, and whenever I hear from him, it's always, it's always nice. Well, hey, let's, let's dig into your background a little bit here. Um, I mean, I know you also play guitar, obviously, but uh, any other instruments? And how did you uh, get into music, and how did you get into steel guitar? Well, my mother was a violinist, um, a, a very, very talented amateur violinist, but there were string quartets in my living room every Wednesday night. Wow, that's cool. And, yeah, and, and, and the thing that was really interesting, or one of the things that was interesting about that, was the violist and the cellist who were in my living room every every Wednesday night, were in the Ed Sullivan Orchestra. So when Paul McCartney did Yesterday on the Ed Sullivan Show, the two guys who were in my living room were on stage with Paul McCartney doing Yesterday on the Ed Sullivan Show. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, 
And, you know, I, I think that's kind of a testament to how, how good a musician my mother was because these guys were real pros, and they would come every Wednesday night, and my mom would play second violin. And tell you the truth, I can't even remember who the first violinist was, but these two other guys, because, well, because they played with McCartney on the Ed Sullivan show, I certainly remembered them. Um, so th- there was always music around my house. My dad was a big music fan, liked lots of different, and, 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 there was, and they both liked lots of different kinds of music. So there was always a lot of different kinds of music going, around, going on in the house. And, you know, from, from my brothers and I, I have two brothers, you know, we were, all, we were all kind of playing, you know, singing and stuff like that. But my two other brothers played guitar, and I kind of avoided doing that for a really long time because I just didn't want to get into the uh, sibling rivalry thing. Yeah. So I actually started playing guitar, you know, I think I started playing when I was 15, which seems to be kind of late for a lot of, for a lot of, for a lot of players usually kind of getting into it a little earlier, but um, I ended up going away to, I got a scholarship to this kind of crazy alternative education school up in Massachusetts, and a couple of the teachers were bluegrass guys, and I thought, well, this is kind of interesting, what's this all about? And um, I started kind of jamming with them a little bit, and they said, well, listen, one day they said, listen, we don't really need another guitar player, what do you think about playing the mandolin? And I said, well, I don't really know anything about it. And so one of the guys loaned me a mandolin and said, well, here's a G chord and here's a C chord and here's a D chord. And, and uh, two weeks later, I did my first gig playing mandolin with these guys. Nice. Um, so actually, my first real kind of professional music, musical thing was actually as a mandolin player. And I left home when I was 16 and hooked up with these guys. And we ended up, ended up in San Francisco when I was 16 years old playing, playing in a bluegrass band. So you, you, tour, you toured pretty extensively at that time? No, no, we, we we were we were not a very good band, and <laughs> we were <laughs> we were in San Francisco, and we were, you know, we could barely you know we could barely buy a gig, <clears throat> and of course, being 16 years old and these guys being 10 years older than I was, I ended up spending a lot of time by myself while they'd go out and party, but I, I was too young to do that, so I just ended up having to be on my own, and I kind of got. Kind of got sick of that after a while, and I just said, ah, "I'm out of here." Well, that's pretty interesting that you know, because I, I feel like that at that age, at least in my experience, my parents there would be no way they would let me do something like that. So, your parents must be pretty cool. Well, they were pretty cool, and they, they you know, they kind of recognized the fact that I was not a complete idiot, and I wasn't going to get myself into too much trouble. Yeah. And uh, you know, my dad was an artist, my mother was a uh, school teacher, and 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 as I said, a violinist. So they were they were they were cool with the you know what they say these days the alternative lifestyle and so yeah they just let me do my thing and they were really supportive about it and it was pretty great. Well, speaking of doing your thing, so how did you uh, how did you discover pedal steel? Well, that's a that's an interesting story. I was pretty young. And my friend my friend Tommy Davenport called me up one day and he goes, "Hey, you know, I just got this Birds record, and it's really weird. You should come over and listen to it." So I hopped on my bicycle and I rode over to his house and it was that record, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, of course. And I remember looking at the liner notes thinking, okay, I know what a guitar is, I know what a fiddle is, I know what a bass is, I know what drums is. So that sound that kicks off that record, the first lick on You Ain't Going Nowhere, played by Lloyd Green. I kind of bite. By uh, elimination, I kind of figured that must be a pedal steel guitar, 
whatever that is. Yeah. But I was, I just kind of remember it was almost like a dog hearing something in the, you know, that you don't hear. Um, I remember going, being completely kind of captivated by that sound, uh, kind of like right off the bat, but it took years to, you know, and then the interesting thing was that a while later, my folks and, and my brothers and I were, we were driving somewhere and we all stopped at a diner and there's one of those old, you know, flip card jukebox things at the table. Yeah. And somebody had dialed up and I remember like it was yesterday, somebody dialed up if teardrops were pennies and heartaches were gold, the version by Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton. And I remember it has a steel intro. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, there's that thing again. Oh, that, that, that thing must be called a pedal steel. But I recognized it as being the same instrument. Lo and behold, I, I realized later on that Lloyd Green played, the, played, played steel on both of those tracks. I've I've had that experience many times where I've heard a part and gone like, wow, that that's really good. Who is that steel player? And a lot of the time it's Lloyd Green. Yeah. And he who also played on the Harper Simon record, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. There's some great work on that record. And it's funny because uh, years ago I wrote I got his address and I wrote him a letter. And I had just started playing steel at that point and I just said and I told him the whole story about hearing Sweetheart of the Rodeo for the first time and the event in the diner that kind of piqued my interest about the instrument and asked him, I said, I'm just kind of starting to play pedal steel and I was wondering if you've ever give lessons. And he, write, he wrote me back a really nice handwritten three-page letter. And he goes, uh, he said, the first thing he says, well, I found, your, I found your letter very interesting. Most of the letters I get are not particularly engaging. But he said, uh, and he said, well, I don't really give lessons, but I've included a cassette tape of some songs I've been messing around with in my music room if you can get anywhere with this, then maybe we will talk. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he gave me a hint. Oh, because he also said, you know, my, uh, you know, my, you know, I'm pretty advanced. My, my playing is pretty advanced. And I think he kind of basically told me he doesn't waste, waste his time with beginners because it would just go right over their heads. But he said, but he was kind of nice. He said, here's, here's three tunes that I've been working on in my music room. If you can get anywhere with this, then maybe we can talk further. He says, I'll give you one hint, and that is that a lot of times I use the second string as a leading tone as opposed to the fourth string. Hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what's that about? And he goes, and I employ a lot of bar slants. And as soon as I listened to, listened to the track, with that little hint, I realized that instead of playing the tonic on the, on the fourth string at any given fret, he would, play, he would start off on the second string one fret, above, one fret forward because it's, you know, the second string is a half step below the fourth. And he would use that in conjunction maybe with another string with a bar slant and then slide day and straighten out the bar and work it into a, like a little phrase and so, or something like that. The other thing I realized about his playing, more so than almost anybody else I can think of, is he's very much like a pool, like a billiards player. He never, he doesn't really jump around a whole lot. If you can figure out where he starts and where he ends, that gives you a real leg up as to try to figure out what he's playing. Because he's very, you know, he starts in a certain place and leaves off, and the next thing after that will be basically in the same position he ends in. So that's that's sort of like why I say it's almost like a billiards analogy, where he's setting up the next shot. That's really cool. I've never thought of it that way. And the thing, the thing that's maddening about his playing is it sounds so simple. 
until you try to play it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and half the time you don't even know what position he's in, because as you know, as it, but but you thinking of the second string as a leading tone is a really good tip off. Yeah. If you can if you can if you can identify the sound of this the the second string, which I think is really identifiable, or maybe I've I've just trained my ear for it, maybe somehow. Um, it kind of gives you a leg up on trying to figure out what he's doing. But, man, a lot of times you go, oh, that sounds so simple. And then you, you put your bar down the strings and go, I don't even know where he's starting. I, yeah. don't even, I don't even know what grip he's using. You know, it's like, what is this? <laughs> well, that's that's pretty amazing that you that you had this personal interaction with him, that you got this sort of like learning material that no one else had access to. Well, listen, the, the story gets gets actually kind of funny because... There was this one song that he did, and I decided I was going to concentrate on that. And I literally spent eight hours for a week trying to figure out every phrase and trying to get the right voicing. That was the, that was the key, because there was always something about his voicings that I found intriguing. You know, a lot of times they're not just that, you know, three, four, and five string, or four, five, and six string, you know, straight triad type thing. Yeah. It's always something interesting about his voicings. So I was really trying to get those, you know, not only the notes right, but the voicings correct and all that kind of stuff. And I worked my ass off on it. And then I go, okay, I think I got it worked out. Now, what do I do now? I want to, I want to show him that I'm willing to put the time in. I don't, I'm not expecting the, the magic bullet that will open all doors. So what I did was I, I recorded my own backing track of the song that he had sent me and then overdubbed Steel Part on top of it basically kind of replicating what he had sent me yeah and um i get a i sent it to him and i get a letter back and he basically tears me a new one he goes you know your intonation is terrible your phrasing is terrible i mean he really oh no kind of, kind of, <laughs> brutal, kind of brutalized me but then at the end but then at the end he goes however you have a very good ear yeah and I'm and I'm thinking to myself, you know, some people might have been really offended by this, but I was flattered by the fact that he actually took the time to listen to it and critique it. Yeah. And I just thought that was I thought that was super cool, you know? And a couple of like maybe a few weeks later, I went down to Nashville to work on a record for somebody I used to work with a lot. And somebody said, Oh, you should call Jimmy Crawford because he loves talking to young you know, steel players and he's a he's he's just a really friendly guy. So I, I sent him in, sent Jimmy an email. So I'm going to be coming down, down to Nashville, and he writes back and he uh, says, "Well, give me a call when you when you get to town. Love to meet you." So I had a day off and I called him up, and he goes, "Well, John, you know I'm kind of a night owl. Um, why can you come up and sit late, you know, this evening?" And I went, "Yeah, sure." And I spent we I was there until two in the morning. We were just talking about everything. He was a real character. Nice. Rest in peace. Um, and we just had, I just had a ball, and finally I had to beg off. I said, listen, Jimmy, I'm supposed to be in the studio at 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. i got to get out of here. So thank you for having me up. It's great, and I'll talk to you soon. So I go, in, I go, back, you know, I go into the studio for a couple of days, and the day that I was leaving town, I called him up to thank him for having me up to, to the house and tell him how much I enjoyed the visit. And he goes, John, I'm so glad you called. Lloyd really wants to talk to you. And I said, really? About what? He goes, well, he thinks he was a little harsh with you in that letter he wrote. <laughs> and I said, "Well, you know, he was—he was pretty. The critique was pretty harsh, but as it, as I said before, I told him I was flattered that he took the time. He goes, well, here's the number. Give him a call.' So 
So I give him a call. I called Lloyd, and we ended up talking on the phone for like forty-five minutes. Oh, man. And a bunch of time, and a bunch of times that I've gone down to Nashville, we've gotten together for lunch, and and uh, you know, to be perfectly honest, even you know, bring up McCartney's name again. I think I'd rather have lunch with Lloyd Green than Paul McCartney. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. But that's one of the amazing things about steel guitar is that things like that happen, you know? Well, it's just, you know, as, as you know, it's a pretty small, small group of people. Yeah, it's a small, it's a small uh, universe of players. And because the instrument itself is so sort of mysterious and misunderstood, and it, it's just so... It's so hard to to get started that I think people are uh, you know more experienced players are much more willing to help out the beginners just because they know it's not easy <laughs> you know. No, I think I think you're right about that. And to give you an indication of of how generous they can they they can be, uh, I remember one time I was doing a gig, my first time playing at the Ryman Auditorium, and it was a Wednesday night, and I'm sitting on the stage, and I realize that John Huey is across the alley in Legends Corner, basically playing for, for beer and tips. Yeah. And I thought, this is bizarro world. It's backwards world. This is not right. <laughs> and I happened to be, I was, talked to Jimmy the next day on the phone and told him that I felt really weird about the fact that I'm on the stage at the Ryman and John Huey's in the, across the alley in some watering hole. And he goes, well, John, it was just your turn. And I just thought, well... That's a beautiful way of demystifying the whole thing. It's not about deserving this or deserving that or being, you know, or whatever. It's just a matter of that everybody's going to, you know, everybody has different gigs and you, you know, you, you take the gig that you got. I've, I've noticed that in, in some of the, you know, touring that I've done uh, as a player that, you know, it's like some nights you feel like royalty, like you're just being treated so well and everyone's rolling out the red carpet. And then it might be the next night where it's almost like they don't even want you in the room. You know, it's like, that's the kind of feeling I get sometimes. And it's like, well, well, what changed from one night to the next? It wasn't me. It wasn't my band. You know, it was just people's perceptions of what they want. And it's just so strange how that works sometimes, you know? No, I know. I know. It, it, you know, even it's sort of the life of a musician in a nutshell. Yeah. You know, sometimes, sometimes you're on top of the world and sometimes you're just chopped liver. Right, and yeah. it goes it goes back and forth, and it, when it goes back and forth, doesn't necessarily have any rhyme or reason. It's just the way it is. Well, hey, speaking of touring, um, you've done a lot of touring over the years. In fact, as we were setting up uh, this interview, we found out that we have a common friend who is uh, Andy Washington uh, from the UK. Oh, sure, He's a yeah. tour manager, uh, great guy. <laughs> I love Andy. Uh, so, what are your what are some of your favorite places to visit on tour? Oh, that's really tough. Um, I'm one of those people who really likes to travel, and I really like to uh, go to different places and experience different cultures and different atmospheres and stuff like that. So I don't know if uh, um, I have any f- real favorites. Well, um, it's interesting. Any but the, the one thing I have noticed in all the touring that I've done, and this might sound a little weird, but it'll make sense in a second, if you play the kind of music that I am generally associated with playing, you end up more often than not doing Ireland, England, Germany, Scandinavia, uh, Holland. You don't get that, that far south in Europe. But when, it get, when, it gets, when you get below a certain, uh, a certain uh, latitude, it seems, then groove becomes more important than 
like lyrics and storytelling and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so like my favorite place in the world, of course, is Rome, but I've only played Rome twice. Interesting. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, especially in, in, in a lot of the bigger European countries where, for example, if you're in anywhere in Scandinavia, most people under the age of 40 speak English better than most Americans. Yeah. Cause they watch, they watch American television. Where in Germany, France, Italy, a lot of the bigger, you know, uh, bigger European countries, they have the national infrastructure and the to where all the television is, is dubbed, and so language becomes or English as a second language is less common or less strong, I should say, than in some of the other places I mentioned before, and a lot of the stuff that I do that I've been associated with tends to be more about songwriting and lyrics and stuff like that and you get to you get in certain places and it just sort of goes over their heads yeah you know it's actually pretty similar to my experience i haven't done nearly as much touring as you but i've you know as i've been over to europe a couple times it's uh yeah those are the countries where we did well <laughs> yeah 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 and then you can kind of understand it when you look at it from a point of view of you know who speaks english well and who understands the nuances of the nuances of the language yeah well, let's uh, let's switch over into nerd mode a little bit. Um, let's talk about the gear you're using. What's your setup currently? Well, I just took a I I, I kind of go back and forth between a, a Show Pro S10, um, which I which I really like a lot because it's got a very show buddy kind of vibe to it. But I'm my current love is I, a little while ago I picked up a, a 73 push pull Emmons. Oh, nice! And a single single ten, you know, three and four and Man, you know, it was like one of those kind of things, like for years I was kind of going, I wonder what this whole push-pull thing is really about. And I finally, you know, finally came across one that was, that was, you know, you know, I could afford and was in good condition and all that kind of stuff. And I went, oh, this is a completely different beast. Yeah. You have to play them differently. Uh, they, 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 they in, seem to intonate differently. I mean, it's a real... Almost like almost every other guitar that I've ever played, which are of course all pull guitars, I didn't find that I'd have such a kind of a, a learning curve as far as figuring out exactly how it wants to be played. Like every instrument wants to be played a certain way, mm-hmm. and and that's when you start really getting getting what it has to offer out of it. It took me it took me a while with the with the with the, with the push pull to even get even get it in tune like I like. The technique of tuning it is, of course, completely different. Yeah. But there was something about the timbre of the instrument, where if I tuned it the same way I say uh, to tune my Show Pro, it didn't sound. It sounded out of tune. And I think some of that has a little bit has to do. I mean, I really hate. I really hate getting into the cabinet drop conversation, <laughs> just simply because um, you know all these all the greatest players that we all loved, you know all the guys who, you know, from, you know, from the sixties through the seventies and stuff, all those players that we really adore. Nobody, none of them ever talked about cabinet drop. They just dealt with it, you know? Yeah. It's just part of the job, right? But I, but I did, but I did notice on this push pull, for example, when I pushed down pedals A and B and, and I play the open E string without barring it, that E string goes flat about four cents, which to my ear is a lot. Yeah. And for something, and, and for some reason, the timbre of that instrument, the nature of the sounds it produces, that that disparity seems to be even a little bit more critical. So what I end up having to do is tune the east, the open E 
a hair a hair sharp, like two cents sharp. So when I hit those A and B pedals, I got a little bit of a compromise. Yeah. Like that whole instrument is a compromise. Let's face it. <laughs> but I find that the compromises on a push pull. Well, that's a funny thing because sometimes I can sit down at the same instrument one day and it sounds really, really great in tune and everything's groovy. And the next day, I want to kill myself. Everything sounds out. I know the feeling, man. Everything sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the same instrument. It hasn't been moved. It's in the same room, same temperature, same humidity. Everything is the same, except it doesn't sound the same. Yeah. And I find all of those little subtleties about that instrument and all the tuning compromises, to my ear, are even more critical on the show, on the, on the Emmons because the separation, the clarity from string to string is so much more um, clear yeah. in a way. Yeah, I've been playing a push-pull as my main steel for, for a while now, and uh, mm-hmm. I've just gotten so used to it, you know, that it, it feels like, you know, it's like driving your car. You, you just you're like you get in and you just drive it. You don't think about anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've finally gotten to that point, but I was intrigued by the fact that at first it felt like a completely different animal. Totally. But what I found that I thought was kind of interesting when I first got the push-pull, because I also had, at the time I had a Sierra all-pull. I don't have it anymore, but uh, I got the push-pull and I started, because you know I, I had had a player come into uh, this recording studio where I work and he was playing, he had the same amp that I had at the time, which was a PV Session 500. Mm-hmm. And he was just playing this push pull through it, and it sounded amazing. And I'm like, "Wow, what what is, <laughs> what's the difference?" And he's like, "Oh, it's a push pull." So I bought one like the next week. Of course, it was the player, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'll I'll tell you a really quick story about how much it's the player. Yeah. Years ago, I stopped playing music for quite a while, and I was working in the television business. And I was working in the studio, and we were, we were supposed to have an interview with Keith Richards the next day. And the producer of the show calls me up and says, oh, you know all about musical gear, right? I said, yeah. And he goes, we want to set the studio up so it looks like, like a rehearsal uh, studio. So can you arrange like renting backline gear and amplifiers and stuff like that? Uh, and if he, if he feels like playing, maybe he'll, play, he'll have something to play through. And I said, sure. So I call SIR and I order up a whole bunch of crap, set it up in the studio. And the night before, I'm going to bed and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, maybe I'll bring a couple of guitars down just to put on stands and maybe, you know, just so it looks more like a rehearsal vibe. And if he wants to play something but doesn't bring a guitar, there'll be something there. So I grabbed a couple things and I brought it, brought it down. Now, the, the guitar that I have, that I've had the longest of any guitar I have, it's a 66 Tele that I bought a zillion years ago. It's a real Frankenstein. But it actually has a Parsons White B-Bender in it, number 38. Cool. A really early one. But, so I put that guitar in a stand and Keith walks in, he picks it up. And he puts it on, and he turns an amp on. I'm going, oh, this is cool. And he starts playing the intro to 19's Nervous Breakdown. <laughs> and now this is a guitar that, I, as I said, I've had, I've had it longer than any instrument I have. And every time I pick it up, it sounds exactly like me. He picked it up, and he starts playing the intro to 19's Nervous Breakdown. It's probably the first time he's played that intro in 45 years or something like that. But that's when he started playing. And it sounded exactly like the record. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. It just sent chills down my spine because it just sounded exactly like the record, and it didn't sound like my guitar when I play it at all. That's <laughs> the funny thing. I mean, this whole like you know gear acquisition syndrome and like <laughs> oh seeing what your favorite players play and you know trying to like replicate that setup, and it's like 
Yeah, yeah, that's worth doing. All that stuff, everything, of course, does make a difference. Everything in your chain, from the guitar, the pickup, the strings, the cables, it all makes a difference. But oh, sure. none of it makes nearly as much difference as you, <laughs> you know, like the player. The hand, yeah, the hand. I mean, it always, it always cracks me up when somebody goes, you know, you know, where do you set your tone controls? Yeah. I said, what difference does it make? It's not gonna, it's not gonna be anything like. If you do that, it's not gonna sound anything like what I got because different hand, different attack, you know, different everything. That's what drives, you know, that's what sells the music instrument business. Well, that's true. Yeah. So I don't want to take anybody. I don't want to take anybody's jobs away. So no, no. Yeah, I mean, get, it's... That, get, get that guitar and you'll sound exactly like you're a hero. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna um when I did get that pedal steel the uh, push pull at first, uh when I was first uh trying to learn, you know, its sort of intricacies and how it was different from the all pull, I I set it up next to the Sierra and I played it, you know, and practiced with it for about two months or so. Yeah. And I didn't touch the Sierra. And I thought, oh man, this thing sounds so amazing. Like I love I love the sound of this thing. It's just yeah, it was definitely worth worth the purchase, and I still feel that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then when I went back and played the Sierra, I couldn't believe how much more it sounded like the push pull than I thought it would. I'm like, wow, that's way more similar than I remember it sounding. And I think really what had happened was I just got I like I just got used to driving one car, you know. And then I went to the other car, and all that stuff sort of still applied. So, like the things, the things my hands. Yeah, you, started, you, started, you started driving it. You tried driving it the same way. Exactly, and it and it works, you know. Yeah, well, interesting. I was I was talking to Lloyd Green about uh, there's a record there's a record he did in the '80s called Reflections. I don't know if you have it or not. No. But on a song called Blue Bonnet Something or other, I can't remember off the top of my head what's called. He does like the craziest, longest bar drag move with a with a with a wiggly bar you know bar slanting harmony underneath it going up you know like 20 frets i mean it's it's a crazily amazing thing that he does and at that time he was playing a jch and he told me that he probably would never have developed what he was playing there on his original showbud because it didn't have as much sustain but then when he went when he went when he sold that guitar and went back to his original Lloyd Green model guitar, he had that technique and knew how to figure figure it out how to translate it to that instrument and have it work. But as I said, he probably wouldn't have developed that originally on the show bud because of the sustain it disparity. Well I guess that's kind of what we look for in, in the gear is um, you know, something different about it that will inspire a different technique or a different lick or just things are laid out in a slightly different way. You know, like when you play someone else's uh, steel and like the, the knee levers are doing different things and you have to sort of do a little math in your head, but all of a sudden some stuff comes out that you didn't plan, you know? Yeah. I can't, I can't play somebody else's steel. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't do it. Everything is, you know, the ergonomics of that instrument are so critical where you're not thinking about the, the, the physicality of playing it. You're, you know, you're thinking you're trying to think about playing music and if knee levers and pedals are pedals are different heights and knee levers are a different distance from your leg you end up thinking all all mechanically yeah and yeah. you start thinking in terms of okay if i'm going to make this knee lever move i have to have to move my leg a little earlier than i would on my own and and that's you know the next thing you know you're just kind of playing you know nothing particularly inspiring right yeah at least that's been my experience so 
somebody wants me to sit in on their instrument, I usually beg off that, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, it really is kind of like, you know, you really have to customize the instrument and the setup to your your body, really, and the way you want to play it. And so, yeah, it is very difficult to sit in on someone else's uh, steel. But when I have done it, I find it, you know, challenging in an interesting way. And uh, I always get a little something out of it, you know? I know what you're saying, and, and I agree, because I think that if you throw yourself, put yourself out of your comfort zone and kind of just kind of go with it, unless you're a complete idiot, you're going to learn something <laughs> you know, about, some, about something. So it might even be just something you don't want, ever want to do again. But, you know, it's, it's, you're going to learn something if you keep, if you keep, in, if you keep open to uh, those different experiences. Yeah. I guess it's like dating. Sometimes you're just like, oh, I guess the point of that was just to be like, don't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 that kind of, it's kind of, there's a kind of a, like an across the board kind of, kind of thing about that. And uh, like, for example, every once in a while, somebody asks me to be in a house band for some musical tribute and you go down that, that rabbit hole of learning a whole bunch of tunes from records kind of note by note. Yeah. And I, you know, there's a lot of times I kind of enjoy that because there's so much, to, there's so many revelations when you go down those ra- those rabbit holes, and you learn something or you think about a way of of playing or a, a kind of a, a melodic kind of thing that you never thought of before. And so, as I said, if you know, unless you're an idiot, you should be able to learn something no matter what musical thing you're getting involved in, even if it's, as you say, not wanting to do that again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, getting back to uh, your gear, so besides the Show Pro and the Push Pull, uh, are there any other steels that you're playing currently? Uh, no, I got the the, the, the Show Pro and the, and the Push Pull, and I have my D10 JCH that Jimmy Crawford made for me a long time ago. Uh, as a matter of fact, Lloyd said, hey, you still got that JCH? Because Jimmy just told me, he told me that he thought it was the best guitar, best sounding guitar he ever made. And I said, Wow, he told me that, but I th- I just assumed he told that to everybody who made a guitar for him. Oh, no, no, he was really raving about that one. I mean, the only problem with that one is that it's so heavy. If I'm if I'm doing local gigs, I just cannot be lo- dragging that thing around because I don't have a car. Everything goes in the trunk of a of a cab, and just lifting it in and out of a cab trunk is just not what I want to do anymore. Right. Yeah. But the thing sounds great. But those are the only three I have right now. I've had more, like when I was in. When I was in Ryan's band, I, you know, actually in Cindy's band, you know, when you do these big tours and stuff, you have, to, you have to have two because you cannot go to the local guitar center if somebody runs over your steel with a forklift or something. Yeah. And if, you, if your steel goes down for whatever reason, you're out of a job. Right. So there have been times when I've had more steels than I really needed because I needed the backup. Have you ever had any emergencies like that on the road where something catastrophic happened with your steel? No, luckily, but I mean, I'm also one of those people who sort of, you know, does pretty regular maintenance on my stuff. Yeah. Um, I got a call from a friend of mine, actually Brad Pemberton, the guy who played drums in the Cardinals. He called me from uh, out on tour not long ago, and the guy who was playing steel in the band he was in had a problem with his steel, and he couldn't, he had no idea how to fix it, and he called me and said, hey, can you help this guy out? And you know, and I got him on the phone and uh, and uh, talked him through, you know, what I thought it was, and he tried it, and that's exactly what it turned out to be. 
And uh, another guy I know called me one time because he was hanging out with Daniel Lenoir for some gig, and there was some problem with his steel, and I talked him through that one. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I just always felt to be a steel player, you have to be half auto mechanic. Yeah, it's good to know that stuff, and I feel like, you know, I need to do more work in that area. <laughs> I remember years ago, looking on the pedal steel guitar forum, um, somebody had written a thing saying, hey, Buddy Emmons, I saw you playing with the Everly Brothers. And, uh, and then I read the, read the thing, and it said, yeah, I saw you play with the Everly Brothers, and you spent the first four songs of the set underneath your, your pedal steel. And, Bud, and Buddy wrote back, he goes, well, needless to say, I don't have that instrument anymore. Yeah. Because even, even he was in a situation that, you know, where he spent four songs underneath the pedal steel trying to figure out what's going wrong. <laughs> That's not a good feeling. And as you probably know, depending on the time of year it is, things change down there. Uh, you know, from expansion and contraction from humidity, it changes. Uh, and as you also know, that if you have any sort of binding on anything, the string press, you know, string tension alone cannot is not enough to to return things to proper pitch. So you're I'm always under there wiggling things around, make sure nothing's binding up, and there's plenty of free play in there. Um, just enough to give it, you know, so there's nothing, nothing dragging on the string until, until the pedal or knee lever actually engages. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of mechanics involved and, you know, it's, it's good to have some idea of what's going on when you have a problem. Definitely. Yeah. I've, I've, you know, had to rely on, uh, the knowledge of my friends and mentors over the years, but, uh, I've learned a thing or two along the way and, uh, yeah, I would love to actually understand more than I do about the mechanics. But I, you know, I'm the type of person where I can just sort of visually look and see what's going on. And usually you can just see what's happening, you know, if there's a problem. Uh, but then if I run into a situation where I don't know, then I have to call somebody, you know. Yeah, well, more often, nine times out of ten, somebody who doesn't really know how those things work has over-tightened the tuner, mm -hmm. the, 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 the pedal tuner. So when they let off a pedal or a knee lever, the string is actually never getting to a neutral position. So every time it returns, it gets returning to some funky, funky pitch that's, that changes from, you know, pedal hit to pedal hit. And then, you know, I tell them, the first thing you do is hit that string and back off that tuner. If it starts going flat, then you've over-tightened the tuner. Yeah. And what you've got to do is give yourself, you know, a little bit more pedal throw or change, you know, change where the, the puller is on the finger to give it more pedal, for, you know, give it more travel when you hit the pedal. That's a real common one. It's, it's one that people don't learn from until it happens to you. Yeah. And I oh, guess God, the other no. thing, oh. uh, they tinkering with it. Oh, yeah. It can be, they can be, you know, string brand to string brand can be pretty drastic as far as string tension. Yeah. And your whole tuning thing goes right out the window. What strings do you like, by the way? You know what? I just use Daddario stainless stainless steel strings. Do you order custom gauges or make your own sets? No, actually, what I what I um, well, I, you know, I got a, I got a buddy at Daddario who take, takes care of me pretty nice. The only thing I do, I've gotten to the point now because it's way easier for him, and and if I I order I I get a like a standard pedal steel str um, E9 setup. Yeah. Um, I guess if I got my okay, they're right here. It's the EPS 490 pedal steel guitar pro steel they're stainless steel wound strings and but the only thing I I change is that set comes with a plain six string 
and I like a wound thick string. I like the I like I like the growl. I've, I always found that the plain G, the plain G sharp at the six string kind of goes boink. Mm, okay. And and I don't like it. And um, and I know people usually use it because a lot of people have a full tone lower on a, on a particular knee lever. Yeah. Uh, and that's the only way you can get that 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 string to, to drop down in pitch so so low. You know, a full tone is if you use a plain string. But I don't I don't have that setup on my guitars, and I like the growl of a of a a, a wound six string. So I just basically order a whole box full of six strings, you know, uh, twenty two wounds. Yeah. And just just throw you know I basically just throw out that six string from the set. Well, what else do you have in your chain? Um, you use tw- you use twins with uh, fifteen, right? Well, sometimes, but I recently, I just recently bought myself a, a Milkman. Oh, cool. Amp, which I really like a lot. Um, which one did you get? I got the 40-watt the single 12. Okay. And first of all, one of the things I really love about it is that the cover for my Fender Princeton Reverb fits on this amp. It's like the same size. Nice. <laughs> and I've been carrying, carrying around a twin for years, and it was just breaking my back. Yeah. And I love the sound of them, but it was just killing me. So I, you know, and I, I know Tim Marcus from Milkman from when he used to live out back east here. You know, he's in San Francisco now. And, uh, you know, I bought one of his amps. And the funny thing about that amp is, you know, it's a 40-watt single 12 amp. And when you're sitting, when it's sitting right next to you on stage, it's, because it's a small cabinet with a single 12, it sounds a little boxy right sitting on top of it. But you would never know that recording it. And people that I know who've, who've watched me from the audience says it just sounds big and full in the audience. So at first I had to like, oh God, does this thing sound okay? And then everybody was raving about it and I heard it recorded. So now I just sort of know it's not exactly the sound I'm used to hearing on stage, but I know it's translating really good either recording or in the audience. So I just go on faith. Nice. And I really like it a lot. I really like his, his, his I really like his stuff a lot. It's super well made. Yeah, I've been I've been lusting after those Milkman amps for a while, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> eventually, no, they, they eventually get a, they get a little pricey. But man, I really like it a lot. Yeah. So that was that's the that's my newest uh, new gear thing, and also I have a you know I have a deal with uh, you know I have a kind of an artist endorsement thing with Strymon, and I've got a whole you know I don't have everything they they make, but I have almost everything they make, and I really like that stuff a lot. Yeah, I've never met a Strymon pedal I didn't like. Like, they're all great, you know? Yeah, no, they're super intuitive. I mean, they all have, you know, the, you know those elaborate secondary functions if you want to access them. But if you don't want to get into that, they're totally easy to, you know, you know, especially if you're, you're kind of messing with effects on the fly in a live situation. You know, they're totally intuitive and... You can get some really great sounds, and but if you're in the studio thing and situation and you want to experiment, you know, getting into those secondary functions on all those knobs and stuff can be really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, well, can you tell us a little bit about your pedal steel guitar world of discovery? This is an interesting project. Oh, well, I haven't done that in a, in a, in a little while, but a couple of years ago, I went through a really slow period, and I'm going, you know. Well, if I don't have a gig, I might as well just invent one for myself. And I just had this idea that I wanted to put together a little combo of friends to play and 
the key to the whole thing was that I wanted to try to not play things that were no, normally associated with the pedal steel guitar. So that was where the world of discovery part of it count came in. I wanted to like expand the vocabulary of it a little bit and maybe convert somebody into pigeon, you know, from pigeonholing it into one narrow box and yeah. say, oh, you know, this can actually be, you know, can be useful in other in other ways. And I'll, 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 and this this whole thing started when I was, you know, I played I played on Ryan's record Jacksonville City Nights before I was asked to be in the band. Yeah. Great record. We recorded that record, and then they asked me to be in the band. And I was thinking, oh, this is great. You know, I've already made the record. I know all the tunes. I know all the parts and stuff. This is going to be great. Well, I walk into the first rehearsal, and he starts playing one of the songs from that record, but absolutely nothing like the way it was recorded. And I had this sort of moment where I thought, hmm, <laughs> this, is a, this, is a, this is a rock band situation. What I'm playing, what I played on the record is irrelevant to what I'm hearing right now. Hmm. And I better, I better think about a way to make this instrument uh, earn its keep or I'm going to be out of a job. Yeah. And one day I was sitting there listening and I thought, oh, I got it. Two get you know, Ryan and the other guitar player playing these parts and then there's a bass and drums. And there's this big section in the middle that I could live in if I could figure out what to do in it. And then that little light bulb went on over my head and I thought, I could be the sustaining keyboard here, you know. You kind of, kind of assume that role. Almost like a like an organ pad or a string thing or something. Even yeah, or you know, just just more of a chordal and more of a chordal accompanying instrument as opposed to necessarily like a lead or lick or fill kind of instrument. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of had to figure out well, playing pedal steel like most like most people play it will not work, and how do I have to alter the technique? in order to make this work. And then I had, you know, two more light bulbs went on over my head, and I realized, well, the first thing to do is play without any vibrato, because vibrato immediately makes it sound almost old-fashioned, almost Hawaiian. Hmm. And also, the A pedal that kind of wangs it up to the, to the major third, which gives it the twang, yeah. lay right off of that. Either leave it open to play either, if you want to... Think of it as a major second or a ninth or whatever, however you want to think about it, or hit it straight on as a major triad. But try to avoid that bang, you know, yeah. the, the wang, the wanging it up to the major third. And it's and as soon as uh, as soon as I realized that that was the key, everything fell into place. And I've had a couple of like front of house guys that we worked with in Ryan's things. One guy in particular says, "God, I just love what you do up there because what you're doing is." you end up making this big nest that everything sits nicely into. Oh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah, you kind of surround everything. Well, in that band, it was also helped that I was playing with two amps where we were in stereo, so you could, you know, really, really widen it out, you know, uh, widen out my sound. But yeah, I started thinking about it in, in those terms. No, you know, no vibrato and, and stay away from that wanging it up to major third A pedal thing. And then just start, start thinking almost, almost like... Holding like a holding a big chord, and the thing that I found was really effective was you hold the chord with no vibrato, which means your intonation has to be right on. That was that's the real challenge there because most people cover up bad intonation with vibrato. Right. Um, hold that thing. Just keep keep pumping it with the volume pedal, just so you have a nice sustained level of volume. And then right before you move to the next chord, give it a little little vibrato because it builds a little tension, and then you just drop into the next chord change. 
once again with no vibrato, and it's super, super effective, and it's really simple. I'm going to try that no vibrato trick. That's, I never really thought of it that way. That's cool. Yeah, and um, the other thing that's, that's really something that I think a lot of pedal steel players don't take full advantage of is if you hit a, um, hit a chord or a, no, a single note or something, and you just let it sustain and keep that volume pedal moving up so you keep it at the same level, the instrument inherently starts developing these really complex overtones which are really super cool, but most people never hold something long enough to get that going because it gets super ethereal and super swimmy and, and cloudy and, and it gets super groovy. But, you know, you've, you've got to be, you got to commit to holding it for a long time. You know, that's one thing. I, uh, I think it was either in an interview or somewhere I saw Daniel Lanois talking about um, his approach and one of the things, because he doesn't play with uh, finger picks. Right. And he also, he plays with a very light touch and just lets the volume pedal do a lot of that work. And I think that's part of the reason why his, his tone, his sound is so different, because you're hearing all those harmonics and things, because they're just being pushed forward. Right. And, um, and also, well, the other thing that's difficult about the pedal steel, which people don't usually talk about, but it kind of comes into play here, is that if you hit the string with too much attack, you don't get any sustain. If you hit it with too little attack, you don't get any tone. So it's finding that balance. Yeah. And so, you know, when you start having somebody who plays without finger picks, you're not getting that really sharp attack. It's a much rounder sound, which is generally, naturally going to have a, a lot more, uh, a lot of groovy stuff happening, just simply because it's not being dominated by that, the main fundamental sound of the note um it's it's it's, this is really nerdy stuff oh that's this is the place for it (laughs) yeah it's it's almost getting embarrassing no 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 this is what we like (laughs) well let's let's go ahead and uh and wrap it up here pretty soon you've been very generous with your time and i appreciate that john my pleasure one last question i wanted to ask you before we get into uh, upcoming releases and tours and, and plugs and stuff, is uh, one thing that I've started asking at the end of all my interviews, because I find it uh, brings interesting responses, is what do you predict will be the future of the pedal steel guitar? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I really don't. Um, the biggest problem with the pedal steel guitar is, as far as I'm concerned, is that mechanically they're problematic and they're problematic because of how much they cost. Yeah. That somebody really has to feel like they really want to commit to this instrument before they even buy one. And that's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty steep hill for a lot of people. And, you know, the problem, of course, is a lot of times people go, well, I found this really cheap one, so I think I'll take a stab at it. But the reason why they're so, it's so cheap is because it doesn't work right. Right. You know, it's, you know the problem with pedal steels is that most of it is metal on metal, and no matter how well you maintain it, it's eventually going to wear out. And when they wear out, things don't return to pitch properly, all sorts of mechanical problems, all sorts of things start getting hung up, and uh, you get discouraged. And that's what happened to me first. But I, I bought one many, many, many years ago, and it was a real junker, and I could never get it in tune. And within a month or two, I just gave up and didn't, didn't, didn't take another stab at it for 10 years. Oh, wow. And then when, when later on I realized, oh, that was the problem. I bought some piece of junk that didn't work properly, and it was so discouraging. Um, so that, to me, that's the biggest problem. And as, as people play them and buy them less and less, there are fewer and fewer people making them. 
and the demand is small, so they tend to be really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the biggest hurdle for any future for the instrument, to be perfectly honest. Because you have, you have a choice of brand new instruments, which are very expensive, or you have uh, a bunch of used stuff out there, unless you have somebody advising you. You're in, you're in every, everybody, almost everybody I know who plays pedal steel, the first one they bought was a hunk of junk. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, it's, a, it's a miracle that they stayed with it, because I, I remember my own experience. Well, you know, I I haven't played one of these, but the the stage one steel is getting pretty positive reviews across the board. It seems like, and that's one that is, uh, you know, it's marketed at beginner players. Yeah, and it's around, I think, I think it's around eleven hundred, twelve hundred dollars, which is high for a you know for a beginner instrument. But considering what you know some of these pro models cost, it's not bad at all. Yeah, I mean the biggest the biggest drawback for any student steel that I've ever encountered was that they're usually they're inexpensive. They save money by not making it particularly flexible as far as changing tunings or limited knee lever stuff. And I've always told people, I said, if you're really serious about learning that instrument, you're going to outgrow it in six months. Right. Yeah. You're going to you're going to hit a six month part point, and you're going to go. Man, I've heard this incredible lick on the record, and I realized what they were doing, and my instrument doesn't do that. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you don't want to tell people to go out and spend a lot of money on something that they're going to outgrow in six months. But as you said, the alternative and, you know, buying a, a pro-level inst- instrument that's in good condition starts getting expensive real fast. But one, I think one adv- maybe kind of silver lining to that whole situation is that this kind of like almost built-in mentor relationship because, you know, when I first got my first steel, which was a Carter starter, I ordered it, I set it up, and then I'm like, oh, crap, what have I done? Like, I, I have no idea how to even get started. So I just went and hunted down a teacher in the area I was living at the time and mm-hmm. went to a sh- show that he was playing. I just Googled it, you know, like... <laughs> Sacramento pedal steel guitar and found this guy, uh, Jim Gray. And I went and cornered him and said, Hey, teach me this. And he said, well, all right, bring it over. I'll, you know, show you a couple of things. And then I've found this very supportive community here in Portland, mm-hmm. all these players who are more experienced than me. And when I get stuck with something, they'll say, yeah, bring it over. Let's, let's figure it out. You know, and I think because there's such a small community that it is more supportive in that way, you know? Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's, I found that to be true also. I also found it to be true that once you get to the point where you really start competing with people, like like every instrument, the generosity tends to ebb off a little bit. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's just the nature of the thing, it's, especially with pedal steel. You know, it's it's not a meat and potatoes instrument, and, uh, and uh, you know, not everybody needs one. Right. And so... Uh, you know, if you're a really, really great bass player, a really great drummer, you'll work forever if you have a decent personality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's part of it, too, because I think most of us steel players are also, you know, multi-instrumentalists. Right. For the most part, I don't think I know any steel player who doesn't play something else. No, well, this is, yeah, absolutely. And the, the, but the other problem with that is, I remember doing a gig one time, uh, picking up a new gig, and they said, uh, yeah, bring... Um, Bring an acoustic guitar, electric guitar, electric twelve-string guitar, mandolin, pedal steel, and a lap steel. Wow! And they weren't they weren't offering any more money than the bass player who's walking in with one instrument who never changes their strings. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, just, think, just think of what it costs in strings to keep you know good strings on five or six instruments that you're using on a regular basis, and yeah. uh, you know utility utility players or or multi instrumentalists they tend not to get paid any more than anybody else. So it's it's it's, it's a it's a it's a double sided sword on that one. Yeah, you may be right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially around, you know, I live in New York City, and as I said before, I kind of get around in cabs and stuff. And <laughs> sometimes I'll tell people, you have a choice of two instruments. I'm bringing two. <laughs> because it's not just the instruments, but it's all the cabling and the pedal boards and this and that. And oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah just, it's, it's exponential. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I said, you get two. Pick two. <laughs> Nice. Well, um, John, I know you're kind of on a forced hiatus right now, but um, do you have any upcoming tours or any upcoming releases you want to talk about? Oh, shoot. Uh, well, there's a couple of things. Um, the past, in this past year, I did a record with this guy named Zephaniah O'Hora here in the city. And I'm just, I, I just love this record. It's um, Jim Campolongo's playing dr- a guitar on it and also co-producing it. Um, with Luca Benedetto, and it's like a classic country record from like 1972, hmm. but without sounding like intentionally retro, for the most cool. part. And the songs are really good. So I, uh, it's a record called "This Highway" by Zephaniah Ohora. That's O H O R A. And then there's a young singer-songwriter named Do- uh, Dory Freeman, who's her first, I played on her first record, and she has a new new record that just came out. Uh, who I think is really super talented, and I, I you know, love that record. Um, that's called uh, Letters Never Read by Dory Freeman. Nice young woman from Galax, Virginia. Cool. And and Teddy Thompson produced that record, and Richard Thompson plays on it. And it's a it's a really nice record. So I'll leave it at that for now. And as far as any tours coming up, I got absolutely nothing at the moment because yeah. I've just been. Everybody knows I'm disabled at the moment, but as soon as I'm up and running, I'm going to let everybody know. Oh, yeah. I need to work. <laughs> I need to work. And uh, for people who want to follow what you're up to, you have the on Facebook is the John Graboff's What's Happening page. Is that the best place to keep tabs on you? Well, either either my personal one or, or that one, because uh, I haven't posted anything on there for a while, obviously, because I haven't been doing anything. Um but yeah, either one of those. You know, I usually if I if I post something about a gig on one, I usually do it on both. So either one. All right. Well, we'll we'll end it there, John. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time, and I know we had to reschedule this a few times, so I appreciate your flexibility as well. And I and I appreciate yours, and hopefully we'll get a chance. We've come. It seems like we've come close to meeting face to face a couple of times, but hopefully it won't be too long before we actually do. Let's hear a song that John played on. This is a song called Catterwall by an Austrian band called Polkhoff. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but as close as I can get. Everything I ever wanted from you was a lie You were so tied up in his eye And all I ever dreamt of was your So go.
listening to the pedal steel podcast we have more episodes in the hopper i've got some interviews and segments already recorded that i'm just working on editing and i've also uh am working on lining up some more stuff for the future so don't fear there are more episodes to come if you like the pedal steel podcast go ahead and find us on facebook and give us a like on there and it always helps if you give us reviews in the itunes uh, podcast section that really helps a lot for visibility and you know tell a friend Thanks for listening.